Welcome to Because the Beatles, the podcast about the Beatles, everything about the Beatles 24-8. I'm Erica. And I'm Allison. And before we start, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on Spotify. And if you're enjoying Because the Beatles, feel free to leave us a preferably five-star review so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting videos, photos, and more from this episode and beyond. And you can also email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com yes that is so right so how's it going oh god it's going well it's you know we took a nice long break september was crazy for us so it's nice to be back funny content note we're both in brooklyn right now we're not together but we're both in the same borough yes still recording in separate places but we will be able to see each other in a couple of days so we'll get more pictures together which is always yeah Maybe we'll do something. We'll go live somewhere, Facebook or Instagram or something and, and hang out with you guys a little bit. But yeah, so excited. I haven't been back to Brooklyn, I think, since the White Album Symposium. Oh, awesome. Last year. Yeah. So yay. I'm so happy to be back. And, Welcome uh, back. So how is everything going with you, Erica? You had a big day this week. I did. Yeah. Your birthday. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. Yes. It was yes, my birthday. We went to see Moulin Rouge the Musical, which Mm. is the musical version of my favorite movie of all time, which I know is weird, but I fucking love Moulin Rouge, and the musical is just gorgeous, so it was awesome. Did your puppers get you anything for your birthday? They just got me their undying love and lots of poop. And I'm sure some, you know, eaten walls. We're better at that now. When, When Rusty was a puppy, the... When my bulldog was a puppy, he used to eat drywall and he ruined, <laughs> yeah, he ruined a lot of things. But now he's a, he's a dapper young man of two and a half and he's very gentle and sweet and he just likes to hang out on the couch and not eat things he shouldn't. Aww. Yeah, he's a good boy. Well, gosh, should we get into beetle banter? Because I am very excited for what you're going to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we took a little time off during the month, so this isn't quite as up to date. But I am going to talk about the September airing of Paul McCartney on The Colbert Show. Oh my god, I'm so excited. Finally. Finally to hear you talk about this. Finally. Now, this was aired in late September. It was a promo for his book, Hey Grand Dude, for the most part. But it ended up being the majority of the episode where the two of them were talking, I think, about 45 minutes of the episode. I was lucky enough to have actually been at the taping of that show. Eight Uh, feet from Paul McCartney. Oh, my God. Eight feet from fucking Paul McCartney. Now... I got very lucky on this because my fiance's brother is a producer and writer on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. The episode was taped back in July with plans to use for some time in the fall when they had need for a filler episode, which they did because they were going to the Emmys that night. So that's when they put it on. Um, So it was actually done in July. With about less than a week's notice, he texted us and was like, hey, so Paul McCartney's going to be on. What should I ask him? What is he doing these days? So didn't even really know what the deal was, why he was on. And we figured out that it was for Hey Grand Dude, which wasn't out yet. They were going to use it in September. They already knew, so they set it up as a promo. So got to go. It was the most incredible thing to be there in the Ed Sullivan Theater, mm. watching That's Paul so McCartney. Real. The best part about it, this was not a plant. There's a part before the show starts where Stephen comes out and you can ask him some questions. And some guy in the back yelled out, where in the stage did the Beatles perform? Nobody in the audience knew Paul was going to be there. It was a surprise. So Stephen's answer was, if I've got a Beatle on, I'll let you know. LOL. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> he did. And then when he came out, the first question that he asked Paul was like, where were you performing? Where, did, where was it on the stage? And of course, Paul had no fucking idea. Of course not. <laughs> Paul, like, it's funny because like, I feel like Paul gives so fewer fucks than any Beatles fan about any of this stuff. And it drives fans insane just crazy it's like why can't you remember it does and i'll get to that um yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) the interview is actually longer than than you saw obviously they did do some editing but i think most of the good parts were left in there was a opening bit with a woman dressed up as kind of like a 60 year old fan 
still in the stands waiting for her mother to pick her up from 1964. <laughs> I can totally tell it would have been hilarious in the writer's room, but Paul didn't really get it and we didn't really get it. So oh, it, Paul didn't get it. No, oh. Paul was kind of looking up like, oh, okay, like because you couldn't actually tell totally oh. when you first looked at her because she was definitely an older person, but she was dressed up like a kid and from way, way, way back in the stands, like you couldn't see oh, totally. Yeah, maybe put her closer or had her more like beetled out. It really seemed clear that they did not let Paul know that that was happening in advance. Oh, shit. Awkward. <laughs> so it didn't end up making it, but it was kind of fun to see how the show was working and all of the little cuts that they did. And Paul was so good. He was such a good sport. He was smiling. He was laughing. He was having such a good time. Oh, he loves Stephen Colbert, though. He does. Actually, they had a really nice moment back in 2013 when he was on the Colbert mm. Report. Yes. Um, what happened that day was that Colbert, in the middle of the taping of the show, got a message that his mother had passed away. And... He had actually never met Paul McCartney before, but this happened and Paul was in the show and he left, Stephen left and Paul basically just took over. He's like, it's my show now. And you know, you can find the tape and it's funny, but he, he did that for Stephen. And so I think the two of them, while they don't know each other very well, that was a moment that connected them. And it was really sweet. So sweet. It's so sweet to know the backstory because I still remember that happening and being like, oh, that's so cool that he got to do that. But knowing that he was taking over for Stephen who just lost his mom, it's just like so dear, you know, it shows what a compassionate person Paul is. Yeah, it was so sweet. And my fiance actually met him that day and got to talk to him. Uh, I'm jealous. He did ask him a good question. He did better than I ever would. He asked him about his bass playing and like what he's up to now. And Paul actually told him it was when he was just putting Mr. Kite into his set list and that he was nervous about playing the bass part because he had never really done it before and he was just getting used to it. Oh, my God. I really wish Luke would have said like, yeah, maybe leave that one out. <laughs> <laughs> Not my favorite moment in Paul shows, but, you know, to each his own. It didn't last that long. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Was replaced by what? All together now? I don't know. Okay. <sighs> uh, but we can talk about that later yes paul did not sing but he was there he was funny he was sharp he was looking great uh, mm. gorgeous suit nice Silver fox. so the show aired two months after but when that happened and this is where i want to rant when it showed up the reaction from Beatles fans, or at least many of the Beatles fans, not all, but many people that I saw on social media was really fucking negative. Mm. Like, oh, that was softball questions. Why did he tell that yesterday in his dream story again? He must have like goons behind him that forced them to ask these questions. He must have a list they give him because he wants to tell that story, all this stuff. Oh my God. People give him way too much credit. <laughs> Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. I was actually commenting back to some of these people like, no, I, I know a little bit about how it was going down. You know, they only had about a week to do it. It was actually fairly organic. There were some good moments in there that seemed surprising. There was the bit with the opening bit that he definitely seemed caught off guard for and all this. And a couple of people online tried to school me for A, being so naive that why would I think that there wouldn't be a pre-interview, which I never said that. Obviously, there was a pre-interview. Mm. And B, how dare an interviewer not ask the hard-hitting questions of Paul? One of the examples that I got was, what if he had come out and said some and asked Paul how he felt when John Lennon was yelling homophobic slurs at Brian? How did he feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> or how did he feel about Yoko? Like, I don't want... <laughs> Sorry, I'm just picturing Paul coming out <laughs> and that being uh, Colbert's first question to him. <laughs> oh, that makes me cry laughing. Like, right? I, how did, so, Paul, <laughs> how did it make you feel 50 years ago when John Lennon said homophobic shit to Brian? Oh, my God. I just cannot... In what world do these people live? Right? For that one thing, that would be so <laughs> offensive on a promo spot on a late show for a kid's book. Yeah, that's... <laughs> that makes it even funnier. Like, <laughs> that's the kind of question he would get 
if like he and I were drunk together and it was like three o'clock in the morning and I was like blackout, I'd be like, Paul, <laughs> right. tell me how you felt when John said X, Y, Z. But like not, you know, Stephen Colbert is not going to ask that. And it, you know, Paul wouldn't remember. Do you remember things from even 10 or 15 years ago that like didn't stand out in your memory back then? No, I mean, Paul is so quote unquote selective in his memory. Yes, I'm sure he, he wouldn't address it. I mean, anyway. Right. And I mean, I leave that to people like Mark Lewison to find out things like that using primary source material. Paul is not the person for that. And expecting more from him than what you're going to get. I mean, I think that it, it does both Paul and the fans a disservice. You know, what we did get in this interview was some really nice emotional moments between Paul and Steven. And Steven is a fanboy. He really is, you know. I like, love that. He's not like hardcore like us. He's more middle of the road. And he hearing the story about yesterday, you know, not everybody has heard it. Everybody in our circle has heard it. We're probably not talking to you if you're listening to this, but we all have seen it go down on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. But, you know, we're a very select group. We're like kind of the 1% of Beatles fans. Like the majority of the world, like I think about my family, I think about casual Beatle friends. Like they don't know the scrambled egg story. They don't know like all this stuff that we can recite off the top of our heads. And we sort of are like, oh, this old trick again we're such a minority in this and we don't recognize that enough right and i don't fault anybody for not wanting to watch an interview like that but expecting him to come out with something profound or scandalous or some new bit of information does a disservice to the part that actually was new which he talked about a lot of emotional things like he talked about the difference between Paul the persona and Paul the guy who likes to watch TV at night. That's awesome. You know, he talked about that and he talked about feeling like everyone hated him after the Beatles breakup. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how he feels about his friendship with John. Like those were great. Yeah. There were some lovely things in there and I was just disappointed to see vitriol about the interview that missed some of those really actually special things. I mean, he's he's in his late 70s now. He's not going to give us any new information, any new scandals. But those insights on his personality and character for somebody who is traditionally not the kind of person to really talk about emotions. I mean, he's very like stiff upper lip in that way. That's new. And that's nice to see. I mean, this is the guy who right after John was killed, said it's a drag, you know, and of course, he was in shock. But like, that's how he's always kind of been with his emotions. And you're right, Erica, it's it's wrong of us to sort of overlook these things. I think about Carpool Karaoke, where James Gordon mentions his grandfather, and they had that really lovely moment in the car. And I was like, in tears, like, you know, and so even those little moments, like, yeah, the rest of the Carpool Karaoke was kind of stuff that we all knew, and it was cool to see Liverpool, but it's, you know, but you do, you miss those moments. And you know, this is why we can't have nice things sometimes <laughs> exactly. in the Beatles fandom. It's, <laughs> it's like, guys, come on, like, do we really have to fucking nitpick every single part of this? Like, you're right. Paul's in his late 70s. We're not going to do anything new. Cherish these fucking moments. I'm not going to go into it. But this is, it's just like, have fun with it <laughs> a little bit, you know? I don't know. I get sick of this crap. One of our listeners, Leah, if you're out there, she mentioned. She's awesome. I know, she's so cool. She mentioned that she went on some of the, like the Colbert site where there were comments and the social media for that. And the comments were like 100% positive and excited about it. You know, nobody was saying, oh God, that old story. That's the point. Like, and that's really important to remember, you know, that bit of levity where it's like, yeah, you are preaching to the choir when you go on like Beatles groups on Facebook, but like the people who actually watch Colbert are more casual fans and they thought that was cool. So there you go. There you go. <sighs> so that's my Beatles banter. And if you haven't seen the interview, check it out. It's online. It's really good. Yeah, he's sweet. They're sweet together. You can tell that they have a connection. Actually, if you like Colbert, he told a, a pretty touching moment himself about how Band on the Run he connects it to a very special time in his own life. So it was a nice exchange of stories. That's so sweet. Yeah, it's such a good interview. I'm so jealous you were there. Uh, but I'm so glad you were there because you got to tell us about it. It was amazing. The only thing that I regret is the camera angle that you see Paul at was exactly the view that I had for most of the time. So 
for part of the time, I did have a cameraman's butt in my face. And I was in the second to the aisle seat. And I was literally like leaning over Luke, like with my head in the aisle for part of it, like trying to get like the best angle so I could see Paul until I moved the camera. (laughs) It was worth it. Well, at least you're breathing the same air as Paul. As crazy as that just made me sound. (laughs) Whatever. You didn't think I didn't think that? (laughs) There you go. I mean, there's virtue in that. I love it. Um, I don't have much Beatle banter, except I don't know why it's left to me to talk about this. <laughs> okay, so yeah, Ringo came out with a new album last week on Friday. And um, we decided that we're going to do a review episode, of course. Like, I, I feel kind of bad because we did a whole, you know, like midnight release episode for Egypt Station. But we will talk about Ringo's album, What's My Name. We are not neglecting it. It will come soon. It's purely because we've both been busy and we were just kind of burnt out <laughs> after last month. So yeah, Beatles at the Ridge is fabulous and Abbey yes. Road is fabulous, but I think we just needed a bit of a break to get back into real lives. His cover of Gold with me oh, um, yeah. is apparently singled out and uh, a lot of people have been talking about it. I will save it for the episode. <laughs> I don't want to go down that road if I can't uh, fully walk and strut myself. This will not be a Ringo bashing session. No, no, no. I want to correct my reputation for being a Ringo hater. Like, Ringo is not my hero of Beatles. It's true. It's not about him being a Beatle. Uh, I think I've ranted about this before, my issues with Ringo. Nothing to do with him as a Beatle. Nothing to do with him as a drummer, any of that. So talking about his albums, that would be great. Today is Halloween, so we thought we'd bring back something that we uh, we did back in spring, I think, which is do some Beatles true crime talking. And today's episode features the mysterious case of Jimmy Nickel, the session drummer who filled in on the Beatles' 1964 tour when Ringo was out sick. This may not be as quote-unquote true crimey as uh, some of our other topics, but it is very mysterious. His life after the Beatles' run is kind of a blank page. Like, we don't really know what happened to Jimmy Nickel. It's very intriguing. He traveled around the globe. There's been rumors that he's dead. Like, I mean, what is the truth, Oprah Giff? What is it? (laughs) (laughs) And to find out the truth and to learn more, we go through this story with our friend, author Jim Birkenstadt, otherwise known as the rock and roll detective. We love Jim. He's great. Jim is a writer, a researcher, and a consultant. He goes in-depth on pop music history and investigates some of music's most interesting mysteries. He's worked as a consultant to the Beatles and to George Harrison's family. Most notably, he was the consultant for the film Living in the Material World, that Scorsese film. He's worked with the Traveling Wilburys, the band Garbage, the families of Roy Orbison and Buddy Holly, and that's just to name a few. And he recently came out with a book that's a New York Times bestseller, called The Beatle Who Vanished. It uncovers the true story of Beatles drummer Jimmy Nickel, who briefly took over for Ringo Starr before vanishing. And yeah, we actually sat down with Jim last month at the lovely Beatles at the Ridge Festival, and that live show is coming shortly. And we discussed the mysterious and spooky story of Jimmy <laughs> Nickel, The Beatle Who Vanished. It's fascinating. Jim is hilarious. He knows his shit. Oh. Oh my god! Funny. We love we talking to him was just a delight. But there was one thing he did, Erica, that kind of bothered me. What was that, Allison? (laughs) (laughs) So this is kind of a theme of Beatles at the Ridge, and I don't mind saying that I became sort of the uh, the tentpole of propriety when it came to how to pronounce Brian's name. And, uh, you know, it got so that some of the presenters and authors would shoot me a look when they said Brian Epp. Stein, and I would give them a nod. So when we sat down to interview Jim, he started throwing out all these expletives, you know, Epstein, Epstein, Epstein. And I was just like, oh, shit, I can't handle this. So I had to stop him. And I said, Jim, I have to tell you, it's not Epstein, it's Epstein. And we got into like a nice little conversation. Jim is very gracious. He's probably listening right now. And, and Jim, love you. You're wonderful. So he has righted his ways. But... We decided that if one of our guests happens to mispronounce Brian Epstein's last name, it's going to be censored. 
from now on. Just like any other curse word. You can say fuck all day long, but you can't say abs because that is not appropriate. And that's what it's going to sound like. You'll hear yes. that throughout. We're leading the culture change, people. <laughs> Got to be the change you want to see in the world. And I want to see this change in the world. <laughs> anyway, so without further ado, let's get into it with Jim. So we are currently sitting here at Beatles at the Ridge in Walnut Ridge, Arkansas. And we have with us Jim Birkenstadt, aka the Rock and Roll Detective. Jim has written an amazing book about somebody that you might know the name of, but more more so you might know the legend of Jimmy Nickel, the Beatle who vanished. Jim, welcome to Because the Beatles. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me on, first of all. I guess I started out as a Beatle fan the night they were on the Ed Sullivan Show. Yeah. My mom had showed me a picture of them on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, and they were having a pillow fight on a bed so I, in a hotel room. So I thought they were like Laurel and Hardy or the Marx Brothers. So I was like really shocked when they came on Ed Sullivan and they were like playing loud rock and roll. And I was like, oh, this, this is way better than a pillow fight. <laughs> Shout out to your mom for introducing you to the Beatles. Oh, right? she totally did. Yeah, and then she like ran out in a week, I think, and bought me the first album. So, Oh my God, best mom ever. Yeah. From then on, I was hooked. You know, I basically was one of those geeks that instead of looking at the back of baseball cards, I was reading the liner notes and the credits on Beatle albums and, and uh, singles and such. So I just became fascinated in that. And then Every article that came out, we didn't have the internet then. So back in the covered wagon days, you know, you had to wait for <laughs> like a, you had to go to a movie on the weekend <laughs> to see a newsreel that showed a little clip of the Beatles getting on or off an airplane and the fans screaming. It was a little harder then to gather information, but I kept doing it. And then around uh, the late '60s, when the Beatles, oh, at the end of the '60s, when the Beatles broke up, like spring of '70. I was at a real loss because that was my band. I didn't know they'd have a whole solo career, but they just weren't going to be making Beatle records. So suddenly I was, I don't know, I was maybe 14 or 15, and I uh, went downtown in Chicago and found this sort of kind of the Haight-Ashbury section of Chicago. And where was that? It was. Uh, it's where actually where Second City is now. Oh, okay. So like downtown proper. Yeah. Oh, okay. Down Interesting. There. And uh, I went into this store, and it was like a gigantic, it was like the Marshall Fields of head shops. <laughs> Just a gigantic, you That's know. Because Marshall Fields is also on the Millennium Mile up there. Right, right. Yeah. So I went in there, and I was like, wow, what a cool, you know, hippie store. And there's all these black light posters of Hendrix and Jim Morrison and all this. But then I saw these albums on the wall. I walked over to them, and they were the Beatles the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan, but they all had like white covers with sort of mimeographed artwork on the front. And I'm like, what are these records? And the guy said, oh, these are bootlegs. So I said, oh, what's that? And he explained things that hadn't been released and were now being illegally pressed onto vinyl. And I said, well, what's the coolest Beatle bootleg? And he pulled down this one of the Beatles. It was actually unreleased audio from the Let It Be movie of the Beatles rehearsing, chatting, laughing, talking, and I just became addicted to Beatle bootlegs at that point. And it, it helped fill the gap of the fact that the Beatles were gone and then live concerts started to leak out. So I really built a, quite a huge archive of unreleased material and then wrote a book called The Beatle, no, that's this one. I wrote a book called <laughs> Black Market Beatles in the uh, early 90s, which I later learned that Neil Aspinall, the Beatles, had a copy that they referred to when they were working on the anthology. And then in 1998, I heard George Harrison was working on uh, All Things Must Pass to create a, a new remastered version. And I had all types of demos and outtakes and alternate takes. And I contacted his people. And next thing you know, I'm doing research for George Harrison. It's amazing. Um, I would and, kill. That's <laughs> awesome. It was the greatest experience of my life, really. And then when George passed away, right before he passed away, he told Paul, Ringo, and Yoko about me and Neil and said, you got, you guys ought to get a hold of this guy. He's in Madison, Wisconsin. That was his, those now were his last words. Yeah. <laughs> and, his last uh, words were, 
Get Jennifer Get Jim. instead. <laughs> hey, look, forget love one another. No, no, no. no, 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 no. <laughs> CNN just made that. Yeah. That was fake news. He wasn't quite on his deathbed yet, but he was a few months away. And he, uh, he said, this guy knows more about our unreleased tracks than we do or something. And so Ringo said, where's Madison, Wisconsin? <laughs> and Paul said, <laughs> Paul said, it doesn't matter. I don't know which one's better. How can go and help Paul with those two statements? You can kind of have like something like that. So anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, maybe a few months after George passed, then uh, Apple, Anil Aspinall hired me to do work for Apple, and so I've just been doing all this research, and of course I've also been writing books along the way. After Black Market Beatles, I wrote Nevermind Nirvana about the making of Nirvana's which album, is awesome, in the nineties, cool. and then. Uh, the most recent is The Beetle Who Vanished. As the rock and yeah. roll detective, it seems like you really like to delve into these little-known mysteries and bring them out into light. And your most recent book, The Beetle Who Vanished, was about a very interesting Beatles story, the story of Jimmy Nickel. So can you tell us a little bit about who Jimmy Nickel was and why he's important to the Beatles story? Sure. Just on the eve of the Beatles' first ever world tour, they were taking a photo shoot and all of a sudden, Ringo passed out. And this is 64, yeah. right? Yeah, right. it was like June 3rd, 1964. The next day is their first ever world tour, and Ringo goes into the hospital. And in those days, there's no insurance, there's no out clauses in, in these contracts, so they had to go back on the road, and they had to do this tour, or they would have been sued by all the promoters for the lost ticket sales that had to be refunded, they would have had to uh, refund a lot of stores where they were selling all this Beatle merchandise. All these, all the EMI had put had had singles ready to come out in all these countries. It just would have been a mess, and it and it really took Brian Epstein a full year to organize a world tour. You know, I think if it had been John or Paul, it might have been very difficult for the show to go on without them. Right. But because it was a drummer who only sang one song, I think they felt we can do this. So just over George Harrison's objections, they went out looking for a drummer. And the first two drummers they asked turned them down. Who were the first two drummers? Uh, one was Ray Duval. And uh, he had his own club and he had his own band in the club. And uh, he had been with a group called Emil Ford and the Checkmates. And the Beatles had seen them play in Liverpool and had been on the same bill. Talented guy. Second one was Pete Best, right? No. <laughs> Actually, I asked Pete, I, in the book, I asked, I interviewed Pete and I said, uh, by chance did they go back and ask you to come sub? And he, he said, I have one word answer for that. It's no. <laughs> that would open a whole Damn. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty, yeah. That would have hurt. That would have hurt. That would have hurt. Yeah, they didn't even ask him. And anyway. uh, the other guy's name was Graham. I can't remember his first name offhand, mm. but he was a very famous session drummer at the time and he had played drums on the kinks albums and other other big pop bands of that day where you didn't realize it but the drummer you'd see on tour just actually never would play on the album because he wasn't good enough in in the studio so uh that guy said you know if you miss two weeks of session work which was very very lucrative at the time the guy who organized the sessions would penalize you for two months. You'd be out of work. Wow. So he just couldn't afford to go on tour. He was too much in demand. But he suggested there's this guy, Jimmy Nickel. Why don't you go check him out? So next thing you know, Jimmy gets a phone call at home at his apartment, and George Martin asked him to come down to Abbey Road and do either a rehearsal or a tryout, depending on who you ask. So Jimmy Nickel, obviously a drummer, he wasn't from Liverpool, right? Or was he from London? He was from London, yeah. He was just known around the scene amongst artists, but he was completely really invisible to the public at the time. Right. And considering this was a Beatles world tour and it was John, Paul, George, and Ringo, what were some of the things that Brian was looking for in a drummer to replace Ringo during this time? Were they trying to conceal that it was a different person? That's a great question. I think Epstein himself wanted to cover up the fact or pass off another drummer, in this case Jimmy Nickel, as Ringo Starr so that people wouldn't even take notice. And I think the reason I believe that is because he had he had Nickel wear uh, Ringo Starr's suits. He had 
he had him using Ringo's drum kit. He uh, sent a hairdresser over to Jimmy Nichols' house that night and had her do a little bit more work on his already growing beetle haircut so that he looked like the rest of them. And, of course, he would be the farthest person back on stage. And in talking to uh, various fans who were at some of these shows, they had no idea when they went to these concerts in Denmark and Adelaide, they had no idea that it was not Ringo Starr. They, they thought they were seeing the, the complete Beatles and all the posters still had Ringo's face on them. The ticket stubs had Ringo. I think from Epstein's perspective, they were uh, trying to pass him off. But what's interesting is if you listen to some of the audio bootlegs, Paul McCartney made a point of introducing Jimmy by name. He actually said, we're sorry Ringo's ill and he's not here tonight, but we have Jimmy Nickel. And then there'd be a big big cheer for Jimmy. So I thought, you know, good on you, Paul, for pointing Jimmy out and letting him take his bow during this short time. Maybe there was like an internal struggle because yeah. George was a hard no. Yeah, talk about how George was That's like... really interesting. George was adamant. He was very loyal to the concept of the Beatles as John, Paul, George, and Ringo. And if you think about it, Lennon and McCartney were very close because of their writing together, most of the songs. And so as a result, George... And he, George was also much younger. George started to pair off with Ringo at that point in time. And Ringo being the newest member of the band, he had only come in two years earlier, the two of them sort of got together. So George felt very loyal to um, not go out on tour because he said, it's, you know, without Ringo, we're not the Beatles, so we shouldn't go. And basically Epstein said that you uh, have to, you really have to go out because we have all these legal obligations and you can't let the fans down. And so everybody sort of lobbied George and he ultimately agreed to go along with it. How many shows did Jimmy Nickel perform with the Beatles? Let me think. Well, uh, the first day he did a TV show. I don't know if that counts as a show. But sure, why not? They sort of, uh, <laughs> they actually had live mics. And Jimmy played drums, but uh, they were actually, ironically, they were playing recorded Beatles songs and the Beatles lip synced or could sing live along with themselves. And the interesting irony is there's Jimmy Nickel playing drums along with Ringo playing drums on the recording. <laughs> okay. So figure that one out. Weird start. Yeah, but then, uh, let's see, Denmark, a couple shows there. Then they went to Hong Kong, played a couple there. Actually, a lot of the audience was made up of uh, British military and their kids and such. They went to Sydney, but they didn't play there. They just sort of hung out. And then when they went to Adelaide, they played either two or four shows. Can't remember exactly. And uh, some of those have been recorded. Then when they got to Melbourne, uh, Jimmy got to be in his last press conference. And that was the only press conference where you'll see five Beatles, two drummers, uh, all at the microphones, and that was kind of interesting. Did Jimmy get asked any questions? Yes, at every press conference along the way, they would usually start by asking general questions, and usually John or Paul or sometimes George would, would pipe in. But then they would specifically say, well, Jimmy, you know, how's it going? And uh, what's it like taking over for Ringo Starr? Those were some of the typical questions. And then they would say, when's Ringo coming back? And no one really knew exactly, so they would just... It's funny, one of the interviews, all four of them have a different answer. Oh, tomorrow. Oh, two days. So they, none of them do. Now, that's kind of a point in the story where the mystery begins a little bit, because your book is called The Beetle Who Vanished. Talk a little bit about what this would have been like for Jimmy to go from being in relative obscurity to being at the height of pop stardom cannot, for just 14 days. Cannot get days. bigger. Uh, yeah. And then right. see you later, dude. Right. I mean, there's a famous picture of him at the uh, Melbourne airport where he just looks like he's been hit by a car. It's like, what have I just been through? I've gone from being a, a drummer that no one really knew in, in London. Suddenly, all these girls are ripping my clothes off and screaming for me. And I'm getting the, the largest crowds I've ever played in front of. And I'm with the Beatles. And then all of a sudden, now I'm back at the airport you know, with a gold watch and a stuffed animal and a week's wages and by going himself, back home. Yeah. And, you know, I thought maybe they would perhaps, uh, because I bonded with the group and, per and because I'm a good drummer, I thought maybe 
since Ringo took over from someone two years ago, maybe I can take over two years later and be in the Beatles. But I think he didn't realize that the Beatles by then had really become like four brothers and were pretty close knit. So that wasn't a possibility. So he also at that time wanted to actually fly to Sydney and hang out with this gal, Frances Fay, who was this singer who he had met in Sydney. And she had said, well, hang out with me for the rest of my, my time here. Then we'll fly back to the U.S. and I'd love to have you record on my next album. She was a big capital recording artist. And Brian F. said, nope, I bought you a one-way ticket. You're going back to London and that's it. See you later. That's crazy. I mean, you think about like the Beatles at the top of their game and he's still being treated with a workman's salary. As you said, a gold watch, which I guess was a gift from Brian for his services. If you try to compare it to the artists of today, if somebody had filled in for a major spot for Beyonce or something, they would not be treated like that. I'm sure. Well, you know, and this the the Beatles treated him very well, I have to say. And uh, most of the other bands on the tour, I think he got along well with everyone. It's just that once Brian came back, things got really serious again. Like Brian brought Ringo back to Australia. Right. They flew into Australia together. And, and Brian was pretty strict on these tours. And But while he wasn't with them during the early part of the tour, Jimmy was able to go out at night, do whatever he wanted, or stay in and have all the girls upstairs and have the parties and such. And it's interesting because the last night, uh, actually at the press conference when it was five of them, Jimmy was sort of doing a little talking, a, a little too loud to a reporter who had just come to the side of the table. And Brian Epstein got really mad at him. And he had Derek Taylor go over and say, you know, cut this side talk out because you're distracting from the Beatles press conference. Oh, wow. And when he got up, uh, one of the witnesses to this, uh, who was a drummer for Sounds Incorporated, said it was really amazing. Uh, Brian came over to him, got right in his face and just like ripped on him for being so rude at this press conference. Now, from Jimmy's perspective, it's like, this is the last time I'm going to get this world stage, you know, and I'm being asked questions and they had ignored me for most of the press conference. So they were like going at jawing at each other. And Brian said, go to your room, pack your bag, you're leaving tomorrow and you're not going to Sydney. So that night, Jimmy Nichols snuck out while Beatles were having yet another party with girls upstairs. That sounds crazy. Yeah. He goes out (laughs) and he just goes to a bar. And next thing you know, he hears these squealing tires pull up, and it's uh, Mal Evans and Neil Aspinall. Oh my God! He and sent they, the boys he after him. Yeah. He sent the muscle. Brian sent the the henchmen, and they come in and they go, "What do you think you're doing?" And he says, "What do you mean? I'm having a drink in the pub." He says, "I'm not a Beatle anymore." And they said, "You are a Beatle until we put you on that plane." That's oh amazing. my. So and those were really directly from Epstein. That wasn't you know Neil, Neil and Mal are great guys, but they were being told what to tell him. So they dragged him back to the hotel. And I can imagine from Brian's perspective, he wants to keep this group as together as possible. Right. But this was a sub. There was nothing more than a Doesn't sub. Doesn't want anything bad to happen right. that would affect their reputation. And again, this is their first ever world tour. Yeah, it makes sense. So I mean, back to Jimmy. What? Yeah. What happened to him after he, goes he home. was finished with this grand yeah. experience that ended well, in such deflation? It did, but when he got home, he got this hero's welcome. Everybody's like, oh, the fifth Beatle, you know, because that's how they had referred to him in the paper. And he instantly, he got a his record company. He had like a three-single deal with Pi. So they really wanted to capitalize on this. And so the, I think that his next single that came out said something like, Jimmy Nickel... Back from the Beatles or something on the label to capitalize on it. And then he put together a group made up of other session players and formed a group called Jimmy Nickel and the Shub Dubs, which is not a real winning name. Shub Dubs. What's that? Mm. Kind of sounds like schlubs. Schlubs or flubs. Yeah. Yeah. So very talented people. But Jimmy thought, you know what? I've seen how this works. I've seen what it's like on the top of the entertainment mountain. I can do this. I can compete with the Beatles. So he starts getting a lot of gigs, pretty good gigs, because 
He's got the the media still following him around for a while. It's a big story for them. Beatles are still on their world tour. They're heading off to New Zealand now. And Jimmy gets on top of the pops on a show uh, that the Rolling Stones are on. So that's a lot of exposure. And then uh, what's kind of interesting is when the Beatles get done with that leg of the tour and they come home. Oh, actually, before that happens, Dave Clark of the Dave Clark Five gets sick. And so he was a drummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his band can't play without Dave Clark. So they were on the top of a bill at, at some you know week-long event. So instead, that promoter hires Jimmy Nickel and the Schlubdubs, <laughs> Shubdubs, <laughs> to. They didn't say that. Yeah, I know. It's so funny. He, you know, they hire him to take the place of the Dave Clark Five. So that's another big, big crowd. So he does that. That does well. Then actually, the Beatles come back and they're doing a, a one of these one week stands or something somewhere. And Brian Epstein actually uh, hires Jimmy Nichols' band to be on the same bill, and he gets that experience. And then oh, Jimmy, that was nice. Yeah, it was yeah. very nice. Yeah. And then Jimmy tours around uh, the Netherlands with the band. But eventually, by December of '64, Jimmy had thought that they were going to do so well that he could pay these guys really big money to stay with him and give up session work. So he locks into this, but. What's happening is the media goes away. You know, he's no longer in the papers every day. The The crowds at these gigs are, he's having to go play smaller and smaller venues, get paid less and less, and he can no longer afford the band. So they break up. Then another manager type guy, the manager for the Hollies comes along, according to Graham Nash, who I talked to, and he works with Jimmy and says, let's get you a new record deal. Let's just start all over. And so Jimmy starts another band. But the problem is Jimmy Nichols in the back. He's not singing. He's not up front. So he's building himself as a front man that's not even a but singer. But he's a front man yeah. in the back. Yeah, he's not even a singer. So that's not going to work. And, of course, it didn't. And by, say, April or May of 65, that band falls apart. No one ever hears the singles. And now... He's bankrupt because he spent so much on equipment and bands and people. He doesn't know how to financially manage this thing. He's bankrupt. He's unemployed. His wife then divorces him at this time. And he's really down in the dumps in the summer, one year later after the Beatles. Whoa. And uh, Paul McCartney reads about this. And Paul comes to the rescue and calls Peter Asher and asks if Peter and Gordon could hire Jimmy and help him out. And they do. I talked to Peter and Gordon. That's very nice. They were like, yeah, he was really talented. We had him in the studio. Neither of them remember what songs he recorded, but they just remember he was there. And then they went on a tour. So he did a a tour with them. And finally, one day, he just was like he'd had enough. And he got on an airplane and disappeared. So by disappear, what do you mean? I mean, he didn't tell his wife or his five-year-old son. He didn't tell any of the people he had worked on sessions with. He had blown off uh, Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames who wanted him back. He basically sort of shut the door on, a, on every one of these people. And all of them who I talked to said we never saw him again. And this like, is a year after the Beatles yeah, world tour. Right. Wow. So how, he was must have been in his mid-20s or so, right? Yeah, I think he was 26 at that point. And just, it's like he walked out the door and no one ever, none of these people ever knew what happened to him after that. Wow. Which made my job harder because I'm like, now. Yeah, I know. Where do you go from there? Where do you go from there? Yeah. So I'm not sure how I found this out, but. The magic of the internet, maybe? I think the magic of Google. Googly Google. (laughs) Google magic. Yeah. Where where did Jimmy go next? (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I somehow discovered that he had moved on to a Swedish band and had flown to Gothenburg. And they had hired him because another drummer had to drop out. This time because his wife didn't want him to tour. Fair. And said, you know, you're not going to tour. So (laughs) Jimmy, you know, was like, okay. And so they hired him as a full-time member of the band. And... He recorded maybe five or six albums with the Spotniks who were 
an instrumental rock band. They were similar to America's band called The Ventures. Oh, yeah, like a surf rock kind of sound. Yeah. Yeah. Although they weren't necessarily surf rock, but they were instrumental. Right. And they would do popular songs of the day and as well as some of their own. And so he toured for two years with them. From a marketing standpoint, that band was really clever. They'd go to Berlin and they'd record an album and they'd call it Spotniks in Berlin. And everybody in Germany would buy that album. Then they'd go to another country and do the same thing. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a clever idea. The fact that we're, they were, it was so much less globalization back then, it just makes things so much different in the way you market things. And the fact that a man can disappear from his life, but actually still be touring as a public person just in another country. It's mystifying. Right. Yeah, it I mean, is. You know, it's, he's, it's not like he's left nothing. You know, people pick up and leave, but he's left a whole family. He's left jobs. Like, he's probably right. left paychecks on the table. It's like, it's so mystifying. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, when he left the Spotniks, I, was, I talked to their keyboardist, who was always his roommate, who told me that Jimmy turned him on to smoking pot because they were like really clean cut guys, these Swedish guys. <laughs> Jimmy's you know, like, I learned this from the Beatles. Yeah, here's yeah. how we smoke pot. <laughs> so, and you blow it out the window in the hotel room so no one knows. <laughs> That's what he told me. So, But he said, you know, we were in Mexico for like a one month stand at this really nice hotel. We'd play every night. One night, Jimmy just fell off the drum stool because he had gotten into a sort of an underground thing in Mexico and they he had gotten into some harder drugs and he just passed out and their their manager was really strict like if you had more than one beer he'd get upset and he just fired him and they said you know what we have no idea where he went wow so I kept you know I'd get so far with the research and then all of a sudden I'd be like now what do I do so he vanished multiple, multiple times. times. Multiple times. So in yeah. your research, what were some of the different iterations of Jimmy's life that we know about? Well, I mean, he eventually ended up in Mexico. And he did so many things there. Like he, uh, he got hired by RCA as an A&R producer. And they said, we want you to discover the next Beatles. Was he still under the name Jimmy Nickel? Yeah. Wow. He, did he ever use a pseudonym? Mm, no he you know he had different band names right but yeah and that's interesting you know he never he never really tried to disguise himself with a different name although that could be what he's doing now if right, we'll, we'll get he's to that alive. Yeah. <laughs> right no, wink wink but yeah. <laughs> um yeah like he was an arranger he uh he uh did movie soundtracks for you know really far out films in mexico he taught there. He had a button factory. I mean, he just did all kinds of things. And then later, he what did he teach? A drum drum. He taught like instructor? music theory and, okay. and that sort of thing. Yeah. At the local, they had sort of a technical college in Mexico City. And he remarried in Mexico, right? He did. He married a woman named Julia. She is a really nice lady. It took me a year to get her to talk to me. I don't know why, but uh, you know what the the key was. One day she said, well, we're, you know, I was trying to convince her to talk. She says, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. And she goes, oh, well, my sister-in-law lives in Madison. Well, then you're okay. <laughs> so it's that was a little, connection. Yeah. little yeah. connection. You know, if I had been from Nebraska, we'd still be waiting for her to <laughs> reveal all the secrets. It was me. meant to be. Yeah. But she was really interesting. And, and what's really interesting to me is, before Jimmy ever came to Mexico, before she ever knew he existed, she was a professional dancer. And she had gone in a dance troupe to Sweden, to tour Sweden and do dancing. And the guy that was promoting the dance thing also promoted the Spotniks. Wow. And she said, Smart I remember world. being in this promoter's office in Gothenburg, Sweden, and there on the wall was a picture of the Spotniks. And she said Jimmy was one of those people in the poster. But I didn't know him from left field. Small world. Yeah. Crazy. I mean, back then, too, when there was no yeah. uh, internet or anything to pull us closer. But I'm like, so he would have had to get a divorce from his wife that he left. Yes. And I think he did get a divorce <laughs> from his I mean, wife, Patty, before he left uh, for... Sweden. Oh, he did before. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
It was a little quicker then, too, in those days. So, where has Jimmy been in the last, I don't know, 20 years or so? Where's Jimmy? Good question. Well, he... (laughs) At one point, he came back to London, where he worked as a um, a remodeler. Like he would remodel people's homes, and some of the people I interviewed said, "Oh yeah, he redid our living room. He was very good." Uh, and in <laughs> that's awesome. That's so crazy to have like Jimmy Nickel redo your yeah. living I know. room. Like it's like. Okay, we're gonna remodel now after I, this drum solo. I was in the Beatles. I was in the Beatles wallpapering. Right. Like. <laughs> well, he really, he really wanted to make a business of that. But also, that was started in the '80s, and interestingly, this um, Amsterdam Beatles Holland fan club asked if he would come over to do a fan convention. It was like I don't know, twenty years since. He'd been in the Beatles. I think it was 84. So he said, all right. So he and his son went over there. They had a real good time. Uh, They recreated the canal ride in the water. They recreated, you know, waving from the balcony. And there was a band, a Beatle cover band there. And he sat in and played drums with them. And you can just see from the pictures of him autographing things. And these are all pictures in the book, The Beatle Who Vanished. (laughs) <laughs> out now available. out now available on amazon <laughs> bestseller <laughs> anyway and soon to be a major motion picture which we'll, we'll get, get to, to. <laughs> we will get to but you could see he was really happy at this thing and i was able to find the organizer of that convention and he said oh we um we made a recording of jimmy we interviewed him for about an hour uh, at the convention, but we've never done anything with it. And I said, can you send it to oh, me? Oh, wow. I so like that. <laughs> that was really interesting because in the discussion, he talked about how he was um, currently writing a book about his whole career. Oh, and wow. And it's just about ready. It never came out. But the other interesting thing was he made some statements about uh, I can't remember specifically what he said, but he was talking about his Beatles experience and his son, Howie, contradicted him. And you actually hear them on the tape arguing. It's like, you weren't there. And I was there. And, but no, but you told me this and that. So it was kind of interesting. That's cool. You know, they weren't yeah. quite in agreement. And shortly after that, he came home and uh, he also was asked by Paul McCartney through how talk about small world again. Howie, his son, was the sound recordist. That's the credit title they use in England. I guess that's like audio engineer for the Beatles anthology movie. Oh, how weird is that? So when, yeah, so when Paul McCartney, who always was a big fan of Jimmy, when Paul heard that Howie was Jimmy Nichols' son, he went to Howie and said, hey, um, would your dad be willing to be in our movie? You know, we'd like to cover him during totally. the first part of the world tour. And he asked um, his dad, and his dad said, nope, don't want anything to do with him. Wow. Even though yeah. he was writing the book, apparently, at that time. This is really interesting emotional conflict, it seems. Between yeah, yeah. Like kind of an up and down story. thing, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, being part of the story That's from the Beatles' so perspective. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, he just said, you know, I don't want anything to do with that anymore. And then... A little while after that, so he, you know, they had like just some clips of him in there, but mm-hmm. but they were right. old news footage. So after that, this is really interesting. Around ninety four, also, so another ten years go by, and this Holland Beatles fan club guy flies to London and knocks on Howie's door, how the son of Jimmy Nickel, and says, "Hey, we'd love for you and your dad to come back again this year. It's another anniversary, yada yada." And Howie says, uh, can't do that. And they're like, they're like, why? And he said, because my dad has died. Bum, bum, bum. What? <laughs> okay. So, yeah. so the mystery deepened. And so the story at that point was that Jimmy had died in 1994. And again, this is pre-internet and pre-cell phones, pre-everything. Things spread by word of mouth, right. by newsletters, all types of things. And the beat, as you know, there's a Beatle network around the whole world. Holy. And so things spread in a more old-fashioned way, but it spread through the world that Jimmy Nickel had died. Sure, and if your son says you're dead, 
Yeah, I, I mean, he's dead. Yeah, what's a better he's source? Yeah. And I think that was a way to alleviate having to be asked to be involved as a Beatle anymore. But he seemed to enjoy it, like when they went over and, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it's I interesting. mean, I'm not a psychologist, but there's no? probably what? something to look into there <laughs> for, you, says... for you Beatle therapists out there. <laughs> but your car says Dr. Jim Birkenstadt, PhD, uh, He's psychology. He's not the rock and roll therapist. But I am, I'm a jurist doctor, but not a, I see. Not a psychologist. Anyway, so he, he uh, didn't die at that time. He may be dead now. I How do we know that? How do we well, know that? Well, we know How because was... uh, I then continued to dig into his life, and I found a picture of him in 2004. Some paparazzi guy had found him, and of course he was much older, but he still had the same beetle haircut, even wow. though he's now you know 60 or something, and same teeth. It just everything about him was. Same, other than, you know, he has a little more weight on him now and such. Where did they find him? They actually found him in London, an area called Camden. Oh, wow, yeah. Northern... It's not cheap to live in Camden. He must have some sort of... Well, I, I went to his flat, as you will read in the last chapter. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. Amazing. It was, it was actually in an alley. It was the hardest place to find. You know, I'm walking around with, and, you know, use, I'm using GPS... I don't know where this place is. And then I asked someone and they said, oh, I think you go down that alley and then turn right and go down another alley. And there's just this little flat, little apartment there. Interesting. Well, and I guess... when you knocked on the door. When I knocked on the door, you'll have to read the book. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> so I know I'm not getting an answer to this question. No, you're not. I got to ask it anyway. <laughs> is he alive or dead? Bum, bum. Bum. I think it's best to read the book to, to, to gather all of the <laughs> circumstances surrounding his death or his life. <laughs> well, spoken like a true uh, historian. Yeah. Yes. If uh, I was a politician, I would pivot to another topic altogether. Well, let's pivot to another topic and let's pivot to the motion picture that this is going to be made into. Right. That's very exciting. Um one day I got this cryptic call from a lawyer and she said, have you sold the rights, the film rights to your book? And I'd never really given that idea much thought. And I said, no. She said, well, some very prominent people are interested in buying the film rights. And I said, what are their names? <laughs> and she said, I can't reveal my client's names. And I said, well, then I can't sell my film rights. I said, I need to meet these people, see if we get along. I said, they got to see if they like me. We have to see if we have a similar vision of how this can be made into a movie. I think it would be a good idea for you to talk to your clients. And I said, you know, I'm a lawyer. We don't have to be all secretive here. Let's just like have a meeting on the phone. So that's what we did. And it turned out that it was Alex Orbison, Roy Orbison's son, and Ashley Hamilton, who is George Hamilton's son, and Rod Stewart's ex-stepson. You can figure that one out. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So um, we got on the phone and we had a terrific conversation. We hit it off. We're friends now. It's really they're really nice guys, and they they love the whole aspect of how do you deal with those those that fifteen minutes of fame the rest of your life when you're only twenty five or twenty six years old and what do you do and and how do you do it and the the fact that he kept disappearing and walking away from one life and starting a new life somewhere else in the world each time was fascinating to them. And also, they both uh, have been in bands. In fact, Ashley Hamilton was like a big 90s star in Europe. And wow. they, they both saw how fame is fleeting and how you can be up one minute or one year and then forgotten the next. You're only as good as your last hit, that sort of thing. And so they've always been fascinated by that aspect. And of course... Alex Orbison saw his dad, uh, you know, had a, this great early career, and then there was a dip, and then his career was revived. He was with the Traveling Wilburys. He had these great solo records with Jeff Lynne. The whole ebb and flow of fame and the idea of what do you do when you've just been to the, the very toppermost of the poppermost. And so uh, they bought the rights from me, and then we 
made a deal with a, a film company called ECOS, British company, and uh, the film is now what they call in development. So we're working on the script, and I'm helping the screenwriter. So when do you think the movie's going to be out? That's the big question. I would say the script's supposed to be done roughly by next spring. So after that, they have to hire, or maybe in the meantime, they'll hire a director and a casting director. But the script really tells you how to budget for the film because you know how many scenes, where are they going to be, what locations can we do, you know, how, where can we save money. So there's a lot of budgeting going on after that. And then, okay, now that we know which characters are coming out of the book onto the screen, we need a woman, we need a man, we need two Jimmy Nichols, a young and an old. So, you know, they'll have to cast however many people come out of that script. And then once all that's set up and all those deals are signed, then they uh, move on to the actual production. So it's hard to say. I don't think the film will be out next year, but it could be out in 2021. What's your dream cast for the uh, Jimmy Nichol biopic? You know, I don't know that I really have a dream cast because, um, you know, I I think that you, it would be best anyway if it would be some young British actor. Uh, and I don't really know many British actors. I, I was hoping that this movie could be made when Salma Hayek was maybe 20 years younger so that she could play Jimmy's Mexican wife and then I would get to meet her. <laughs> And then she, of course, would fall in love with me. That sounds like a movie in uh, your own mind. Yes. Yes, Yes, indeed. Well, we will definitely be talking to you again. And Selma, I hope, when the movie is getting closer to release. Yeah, we'll both show up. Fantastic. Fantastic. We'll let her in, too. If you're interested in a signed copy of the book, you can go to thebeetlewhovanished.com. If you don't need a signed copy, you can go to Amazon to find The Beetle Who Vanished. What's up for you next? Okay, well, I would say I've just finished a new book called Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed, where I, I pick about eight or nine stories that have always fascinated me, and I delve deeply into them again. I try to find uh, eyewitnesses and things to the events who are still alive and solve these cases once and for all that were either real or hoaxes or conspiracies or myths. How fun. It's yeah. really a lot of fun. So one, Well, one of the chapters I really enjoyed was, did the CIA assassinate Bob Marley? I was very fortunate to um, reach the people that I needed to reach in order to really get to the bottom of that story. So I'm doing that. I've, I've also, I'm pitching a similar TV show in Hollywood right now that's, that would be a rock and roll detective show. Uh, I think we want to make it sort of a, um, more of an like an adult animated documentary program, but cool. it'll it'll delve into these uh, similar stories That's and awesome. more. Well, keep us updated. Let yeah, us know. for real. Yeah, I will. And thank you so much for talking to us about Jimmy Nickel. And yeah. uh, thank I guess you. I'll have to read your book to find out what happened to Jimmy. All right, and we end our show as we always do with our latest Beatles obsession. Hmm, what is yours this episode? As always, I'm on a Paul kick. I never oh my not. God, really? Yeah, I like Paul. I, I like Paul. And coming up at the end of November in just less than a month is another record store day right after Thanksgiving. And Paul McCartney is going to be featured in record store day this year, putting out two new songs, Home Tonight and In a Hurry. They were from the Egypt Station recording sessions, and they will be out on a 7-inch picture disc on November 29th, digital edition on November 22nd. So find your local record store, head out, and find this picture disc. Yes, yes, definitely support your indie record stores this record store day. Very important. And you can find everything that's happening for Record Store Day at recordstoreday.com. There are so many cool things coming out right now. There are. I worked on some of them. Oh, yeah? <laughs> I did. Yeah, we've got some cool stuff coming out as well. Of course, we don't have the Paul McCartney picture disc, but can't have everything, I suppose. But I will have the Paul McCartney picture disc, but so you all will be def- right in the world. <laughs> You know what's funny on that note is I discovered recently, because Paul kept advertising the Egypt Station Suitcase Edition, 
And I sort of just happenstance looked it up on Spotify and it's all there. And I was very excited because some of the bonus tracks I only heard once or twice when Egypt Station came out, but now they're all on Spotify. And I'm probably the last person to know that. (laughs) But I was very excited. If you cannot wait until the 29th of November, go listen to those Paul tracks if you hadn't heard them because they're great. Yes, so good. What are you obsessed with right now? So I am a huge, massive fan of non-English 60s pop music. Like, obviously, I love French pop. And a couple of years ago, I got into Cambodian pop, uh, 60s pop. Yeah. And it's very interesting. There is a wonderful, wonderful documentary called Don't Think I've Forgotten that came out, I think, in 2015. And it goes through the story of Cambodian pop. So the scene there, it was very robust. Lots of cool things coming through by way of France because Cambodia was a French territory until, I think, the 60s and 70s. So they were very influenced by French pop, which kind of explains why I sort of like the sound of the Cambodian 60s music. But it's very like psychedelic. There's lots of girl group kind of stuff. It's got a really distinct sound. The soundtrack to Don't Think I've Forgotten is on Spotify. There are also a couple of great comps if you want to check them out. Um, One is called Cambodia Rocks, which was really the first Cambodian compilation from 1996. And there's another newer comp called Cambodian Nuggets that came out this year. But the thing with Cambodian pop, it makes it really precious, is that during the 1970s, there was the genocide committed by the Khmer Rouge when they came into power. And that was sort of the communist uprising in Cambodia. So the first thing they did was round up all the musicians. And a lot of them, we don't know what happened to them. We presume they were executed or sent to camps and died there. So like a lot of the artists you'll hear on the comps, they're mysteriously gone. We don't, they're like Jimmy Nickel. We don't know what happened to them, except we're pretty sure they, you know, were murdered by the government, which is so tragic. And furthermore, the music's at a real premium because a lot of that music was destroyed around that time. So what we have is really a small sliver of what there was. And I'm really hopeful that someday we'll unearth a huge treasure trove, but I'm sure all the masters, all of that is gone. Anyway, on that note, I love this Cambodian singer called Pen Ran. Sometimes she's called Pan Ron. Just depends on how anglicized her name is. I sort of like compare her to like a Ronnie Spector. Because they both got that amazing voice, got that bad girl flair. But she did a cover of A Hard Day's Night called, and I'm going to butcher this, I'm so sorry, Pinhao Samnien, maybe? But it's by her and a guy called Corn Proy. Um, I'm so sorry. Please correct me. I am awful at pronunciation. But she collaborated with a lot of people, including this guy called Sin Sothamoth, who was basically the Cambodian Elvis. They did a lot of collabs together, and he was really kind of the founding father of the Cambodian rock sound. So all these artists collaborated together. But this cover of A Hard Day's Night, which we'll post on our socials, it's so cool because it doesn't sound exactly on point. Like, I sort of spent half the song being like, I know this song. What is this song? But it's sort of like Hard Day's Night in a minor key. It's very cool. I love it. And I've been listening to it nonstop. This also gave me just a chance to talk about Cambodian 60s pop. So anyway, I'll step off my soapbox, but I love that cover. That sounds so cool. I can't wait to hear that. Shout out to women singing Beatles songs. Awesome. Hell yeah. Yes. Hell yeah. And, you know, these badass women who are in the Cambodian music scene, there were so many of them who are just fabulous. Obviously, a lot of guys, too, a lot of garage bands. There's one great surf band. I can't remember the name at the moment. But again, check out Don't Think I've Forgotten. They talked to some of the surviving musicians. There are a couple of them. And the music is just unreal. If you haven't heard it, you're in for a real treat because it's fucking great. Well, thank you for sharing that. I cannot wait. Yeah, yeah. Check it out, bro. We'll be posting it. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to BC The Beatles. And as always, please subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now and give us a rating or review, preferably five stars, so other Beatle maniacs can find us. Yes, and please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll be posting photos and more from this episode and beyond. Remember, you can always email us at bcthebeatles at gmail.com too, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.